congregation. So I'm going to be watching next week. And uh, just kidding, sort of. Uh, let's, let's dive into it. Let's open up with a word of prayer as we prepare for God to speak through his word. And pray that it penetrates our heart, but also lives out uh, as an outflow from the heart later on this week. Uh, so pray with me that God will work through his word. Heavenly Father, as your body of Christ here in Graham, we call out to you as our Father and ask that in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, that you will work through us as truly the bodily representation of him in this community, that we will truly be his hands and his feet, that the things that your Son's hands would do, we will also do, that the places where your Son's feet would go, that we would also go, and that the ways that we act, the way that we behave, that it gives people a model, a picture of your Son, Jesus Christ, so that they may know and be convicted of the reality that they need to follow your Son, Jesus Christ, through the way that we model him and reflect him in our lives. So teach us to that end. Work through your word for that purpose. And we pray all this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. In the 1939 movie, The Wizard of Oz, Dorothy and the Scarecrow and the Tin Man and the Cowardly Lion, they all want one thing, which is to see the wizard. They have different reasons for wanting to see the Wizard of Oz. Dorothy wants to go home, the Cowardly Lion wants courage, the Scarecrow wants a brain, and the Tin Man wants a heart. But all of their hopes and all of their desires are encapsulated in one single desire, which is to see this supposedly great and mighty wizard. And so throughout the movie, they go through many lengths to see him. They travel down a yellow brick road and deal with angry apple trees and flying monkeys, all so that they can get to the Emerald City. And what does the man at the gate tell them? Nobody can see the wizard. Are you joking? Of course you can't see the wizard. Nobody can see the great and mighty powerful Oz. Not no way, not no how is the way that they put it. Because he is great and supposedly mighty, and Dorothy is small and meek. So they can't see the wizard. Graham Emanuel Baptist Church, I want to remind you of something that maybe you don't realize, that you have never seen God. Not once. The God that you pray to, you've never seen The God that you pay tithes and offering to, you have never seen. The God that you sing to on Sunday mornings, that you teach your children about, that you listen to, uh, sing about on the radio, that you think about, that you read books about, that God you have never seen. He's invisible. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason why we have never seen God. And that is because God's invisibility indicates his holiness. That could be something that you could write down in the intro on your outline. That God's invisibility is an indication of his holiness. And when we talk about the holiness of God, we're talking about two aspects of his nature. When we say that we can't see God because he is holy, the first thing that we mean is that God is categorically different from every single other thing. That if we were to divide all of existence into two columns, 
in one column there would be everything, and in the other column there would be God and God alone. He is creator, capital C, and everything else is created, lowercase c. By talking about God being holy, we mean that he is categorically different from everything else. He's not just like Greek mythology and other religions where their gods are just bigger and better versions of themselves. We can't see God because he is different from us. He is the potter. We are the clay. He is creator. We are created. We are physical. And he is spiritual. But there's another reason why we can't see God. And the reason why we can't see God is not just because he is categorically different from us, but also because we ourselves have sinned and fall short of his glory. When we talk about the holiness of God, we're not just talking about him being set apart from all other things, but him also being completely morally perfect. From Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 to 10, when we talk about and when we read about man's sin in the garden, the first indication that we have in Genesis 3, verses 8 through 10, of sin and the curse of sin, before pain and childbearing and before toiling in the dust of the ground, the first indication of sin on this world was no longer seeing God and no longer being seen by God. We see here a powerful example of this. You guys are probably familiar with this part of the story, but we forget the emphasis of it, referring to the invisibility of God. Because in the garden, when everything was good, man and Adam and Eve, they walked with God. They saw God. He would walk in the garden like we see here in Genesis 3, verse 8. But as soon as they sinned, what did they do? They hid themselves. They didn't want to be seen by God, and they didn't want to see him. That invisibility reflects separation. We must not forget the importance of the invisibility of God as one of his attributes. Because God's invisibility, it not just points to his holiness, it also reminds us of our fallenness. And on your outline this morning, we are going to look for the first part of our sermon today at two ways after this passage that humans have tried to make the invisible God visible. And the first heading that you can put in your outline is that the first way that humans have attempted to see God after the fall is that humans have tried to see God in idols, idolatry was primarily a means by which fallen, unholy people who could not see an invisible God artificially attempted to see him. Because when you can see God, there are several ramifications of that. It's not just that you are able to know what he is like. It also implies that you have a relationship with him. If you are able to see someone that shows a special connection, It's one thing to call someone on the telephone. It's another to see them live and in person. It's one thing to root for the Seahawks. It's another to go to an actual game and be able to see them play physically, live and in person. It signifies a deeper connection. 
And idolatry was a way that we see early on in human history, early in Old Testament history, of a sinful, artificial way that man tried to make the invisible God visible. We have some examples of this. Genesis chapter 4, verse 22. After Cain killed Abel, we see the descendants of Cain in the various ways that they sinned and contributed to a fallen generation. And one of those ways was through one of those descendants being implied as a maker of idols. Someone who would form instruments, who would work with gold and iron and bronze in order to form things. We see also Abraham, Joshua chapter 24 verse 2 makes it clear that Abraham, when he was called by God, was not called as an already good person. Abraham himself was an idolater. He lived in a Sumerian kingdom in a city called Ur, and the Sumerian culture of idolatry was one functioning around what's called the ziggurat, that kind of Aztec pyramid structure that tries to reach up to the heavens. And at the top of this ziggurat would have been a temple full of icons and idols and representations of these heavenly things in physical terms. That's what Abraham was called out of. And the first explicit example that we even see of idolatry is in Genesis 31 with Laban and Rachel attempting to hide the household gods from her father. Idolatry was a common and early practice after the fall because it was man's artificial attempt to be restored to God. To know who the gods were and to have a relationship with them, they attempted to do that through idolatry. But ultimately, we know that these examples of idolatry, of attempting to see the invisible God through visible things, was really just what Paul called foolishness in Romans chapter 1. Verses 21 to 23. You guys probably know that passage. Paul in Romans 1, 21 to 23, makes it very clear that they saw the handiwork of God. They saw creation. They saw all that God had done. But instead of worshiping the Creator, they falsely believed that they could worship the created thing. When I said at the beginning of this morning's message that none of you have seen God, I imagine that a possible reaction some of you might have had was that, well, I've gone to the Grand Canyon and I've seen God in the Grand Canyon. No, you haven't. You've seen the handiwork of God. You've seen the product of some syllables uttered by God, but you have not seen God. Others might say, this is another common thing you'll hear, that when they have a child, when, when, when their newborn is delivered and they look into the eyes of their newborn for the first time, They'll say, well, I've seen God. I've looked into the eyes of God. No, you haven't. You've looked into the eyes of yet another created thing. A created thing that Genesis tells us bears the image of God, but is still just a created thing. And a created image bearer of God that also has inherited sin, that same sin that Adam committed in the garden. Do not fall for the trap that is very common, especially in the Pacific Northwest, that God can be seen in mountains and valleys and people. No, God is invisible. And any attempt to see God in created things is idolatry. And as Paul says in Romans 1, foolishness. 
Yet it is a way, sinfully, that humans have tried to make the invisible God visible. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. We're not going to put it on the screen. We're not going to spoon feed it to you. I want you to open up yourselves to Exodus 20. And we're going to look at what I think is going to be a very familiar passage for most of you, but also a very misunderstood passage. Because what we're going to look at at Exodus 20 is going to be the Ten Commandments. Specifically, we're going to look at the first two in Exodus chapter 20. I'm reading from the ESV. I strongly encourage you to be a Christian who is regularly interacting with God's Word in your own copy of Scripture. Not just allowing Scripture to come from a sermon or from something you hear on the radio or from an outline or a bulletin, but for you to be obeying the commands of Christ in John 15, to be dwelling with Him and abiding with Him in His Word. I encourage you of that. That's why we're turning together to Exodus 20. Because after God delivered His people out of the domain of the Egyptians, God spoke through His mediator Moses And in verse 2, he starts out by saying to Moses to share with the rest of the people, he says this. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Therefore, he's going to give the Ten Commandments. And we're going to look at the first two commandments. And specifically why we're looking at the first two commandments is I think that most Christians conflate the two commandments into just one commandment. And I think we miss something about what God is asking of his people. Because let's remind ourselves of the first commandment in verse 3. God says, you shall have no other gods before me. That one we're familiar with. We know that one well. We've heard plenty of sermons on having no other gods before us except for the Lord alone, and that is true. It is important that it is the first commandment, Because it leads us to the greatest commandment, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. But the problem is that as we get to verse 4, and as we think of people who are artificially trying to make the invisible God visible, we often conflate verse 2 and combine it with verse 1. Because look at specifically what God commands of his people in the second commandment in Exodus chapter 20, verse 4. He tells them, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Oftentimes we look at that second commandment and we think that it's just another reiteration of the first commandment. Have no other gods before me. And that could technically be true, but through most of Israel's history in the Old Testament, when Israel fell into idolatry, the sin of their idolatry was not that they were actively trying to reject Yahweh for other gods, but that they thought that they could worship Yahweh with idols that they made for themselves, or that they could add to God other idols of other religions like Solomon and his wives or the Samaritans who married foreign people, they thought that they could add to their worship of Yahweh and that they could worship Yahweh specifically in addition with these carved images that they made for themselves. 
So just like Abraham, who thought that he could help God fulfill his promises of having a child by he himself sleeping with Hagar, in the same way, God wanted to make it very clear to the Israelites that I am God, I am Yahweh, and I don't want you, God would say, to make any depiction of me. Don't paint a picture of Yahweh. Don't make a statue of Yahweh. Don't try to worship me with any kind of icon or any kind of image. God forbade all of that. And there's ultimately two reasons why idolatry is sin. Because if the Israelites were to say that they're going to worship Yahweh by making some kind of statue of him, the first sin would be that it would be blaspheming God. It would insult God. That it would be impossible to properly portray who the creator is with any created thing. No matter how big or how strong or how expensive, any created thing would be pathetic compared to a holy creator. Which is one of the reasons why God said, do not make carved images in your attempt to worship. But a second reason why adultery, even an adultery that is trying to love and honor Yahweh, is forbidden is because adultery artificially attempts to restore our presence with God. If the Israelites were to make a statue of Yahweh and put it in their kitchen, that would lead them to falsely believe that God dwells with them. And God does not dwell with them because of sin. That God would, at times, be in their presence in the tabernacle and he would go before them, but that God was not yet intimately living with them because of that separation that happened in the garden of sin itself. So for that reason, God's doing more than just saying, don't worship other gods. He's also specifically saying, how you worship me, the way that you worship me as the one and only true God, needs to be done in such a way that completely rejects depicting me with any man-made thing. And in the same way, Christians today fall into that trap all the time. They say, well, I worship God when I go to Mount Rainier. That's my church. That's my cathedral. I look at the mountain and I see God. That's idolatry. It's very common right now for us to try to make God in our own image. Maybe you've seen those Super Bowl commercials about Jesus, where the tagline is, he gets us. Or even the show, The Chosen, that tries very hard to show Jesus as the kind of guy that we would want to have a beer with. The kind of guy who would be our friend, who we could enjoy, who's just like us, who's relatable. Even the movie Jesus Revolution that has recently come out, we see this portrayal of the gospel where we want to make God as much like us as we possibly can. The kind of God who's okay with us, who's who's meek and low and, and deals with the same things as us. We need to understand those more subtle depictions of God as idolatry. When we try to depict and portray God in any way that is physical, even as being like us, we are sinning because God had a greater plan for the image that he would give by which he would be worshipped. Flip with me also in your Bible. We'll go a few chapters further. We'll see an example of the way that the Israelites sinned in this way. In Exodus chapter 32, you'll see in your heading, this is an uninspired heading. My, I'm reading from the ESV, where this particular publication that I'm reading from describes this section, Exodus 32, as the part about the golden calf. 
You might be familiar with this story. Where God had put a person before them, he put a mediator before them who would speak on God's behalf, who would lead the people on God's behalf, who would teach for their sake, and and who would give them signs for them to follow God by. But Moses had gone up on the mountain, and he wasn't coming back down. And so the people down below were starting to panic. We see that in Exodus 32, verse 1. It says that when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. Now, something very interesting here about what's being stated in this verse is that when they say, Up, make us gods, we very quickly think that they are just wholesale rejecting Yahweh. That they're giving up on the one true God and now they just want to worship fake gods. It's more complicated. Because if you happen to use an app where you can click this word gods and see the Hebrew word behind it, you're actually going to find that the Hebrew word behind what they're saying here, make us gods, is actually Elohim. They're telling Aaron, make us Elohim. The ancient word for God was El, kind of like our lowercase g, God. El was the word for God, E-L. And the name for God that we find in the Bible is Elohim, which is actually the plural for God. But the amazing thing about Elohim being described as a plural, even in Genesis 1-1, is even though the label for God is Elohim, plural, he is always depicted and described in the singular pronoun. So even in Genesis 1-1, we see the Trinity hinted at. Because God is communicated, even in Deuteronomy 6, as the Lord your God, the Lord your Elohim is one. But that very word Elohim also implies multiple. That there's, that there's something more going on. That it's one single being, but also a trinity behind it. And falsely, these people come and they say, we want you to make Elohim for us. Instead of describing Elohim in the singular as God should be portrayed because God is one, they now say, make us Elohim in the plural. They say, we want you to make a representation of Elohim for us so that he can go before us. We lost Moses. Moses was the person that God used to put before us. He's not coming back. So we want to follow Yahweh with something that we have created. We want to make an image for ourselves by which we can worship God, is what the Israelites are asking of Aaron. And if you're skeptical, if you're doubtful, skip down to verse 5. Because Aaron makes the golden calf. A a, a young bull was a powerful symbol in ancient culture of strength and might. They were attempting to honor Yahweh by showing him as this very powerful creature. Aaron gives it to them. He says, behold, your Elohim, here is your God, But at the end of verse 5, he says, look at this. At the end of verse 5, he says, tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. This is an example of the Israelites attempting to make the invisible God visible by portraying him with images that they have provided for themselves. It wasn't just that they were trying to follow Yahweh. They were trying to follow Yahweh with images that they provided. And God's making it clear, you will not provide the image of me. I will provide the image of me. And all throughout Old Testament history, whether it's the kings of Israel or Solomon, 
whether it's these pagan prophets, what we find again and again is never a wholesale rejection of Yahweh, but an attempt to know Yahweh in people's own preferred manner with images that they make for themselves. And God says that that will not do. You will not depict me by your own strength and your own means. I will provide a way by which you will follow me. Which brings us to our second heading, our second outline. The second way that humans falsely tried to make the invisible God visible. Point two is this, that humans tried to see God not just in idols, but also in wisdom. And we're going to explain what this means as you write this point down. Once you're finished writing down this outline point, humans trying to see God, to make the invisible God visible through wisdom, I want you to turn with me to Proverbs chapter 8. Proverbs 8 is a great collection of sayings that are inspired by God that give us practical ways to live out a faithful life in very practical manners. You may have heard that there is a proverb for every day of the month, depending on the month that that's a great way to do a devotional study, to read a proverb a day. Proverbs chapter 8 says this about wisdom. They personify wisdom. In Proverbs chapter 8, verse 22, it says that the Lord possessed me, this is wisdom speaking of itself, at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Verse 23 says, ages ago I was set up, At the first, before the beginning of the earth, when there was no depths, I was brought forth. And we see over and over again, wisdom being described as something that was there present with God at creation. If you were to skip at the end of Proverbs and look specifically at verses 35 and 36, you see wisdom describes itself as this. It says that for whoever finds me, finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. Now these are good reminders about wisdom. This is inspired by God, the very words breathed out by God. But at the, old, but at the end of Old Testament history, in what we call the intertestament period, when we see the world conquered by the Greeks, when we see the infiltration of Greek culture, which we call Hellenism, infiltrate the whole known world, including Judah, we see that the Jews at the end of Old Testament history, as well as the scribes and Pharisees leading up to the time of of Jesus, they start to look at wisdom as the way in which God manifests himself. In fact, they even began to equate wisdom with the very Messiah of God himself. Let me read for you a couple of quotes from the Apocrypha The Apocrypha is not scripture, it's not God-breathed, but it's a helpful tool of history to help us understand how the Jews of Jesus' day thought, and specifically how they thought about the Old Testament. This is what the Apocrypha, this is what Jewish literature, uninspired, has to say about wisdom. Afterward, she appeared, this is from a book called the Book of Baruch. It says that afterward, she appeared on earth and lived with humankind. She is the book of the commandments of God, the law that endures forever. All who hold her fast will live, and those who forsake her 
will die. Does that sound like another character you know? In the book of Wisdom of Solomon, another apocryphal, non-biblical book, which is untrue, yet still a historical document that is helpful to understand how the Pharisees and Jewish people thought of Jesus' day, they say this about wisdom based on their misreading of Proverbs 8. They say that for wisdom is more mobile than any motion, because of her pureness, she pervades and penetrates all things. For she is a breath of the power of God and a pure emanation of the glory of the Almighty. Therefore, nothing defiled gains entrance into her, for she is a reflection of eternal light, a spotless mirror of the working of God in an image of his goodness. The Jewish people tended to look at wisdom and specifically the following of the law as the way to get to God, as the way to make the invisible God visible. That if you keep the law, the Pharisees were especially big on this, based on these passages, that if you obey the law of Moses, that you will see the image of God, that the image of God himself will be made manifest in a Jewish person keeping the law, which is why the Pharisees were so legalistic. Again, in an episode of The Chosen, there's this scene where Jesus, and this is biblical, he's teaching in his hometown of Nazareth. He's teaching from Isaiah. They attempt to stone him for claiming to be the Messiah, as the Gospels tell us. But then he makes this statement, which is not biblical. Jesus tells the Pharisees, he says, I am the law of Moses. I am the book of the law. That's nowhere in Scripture It actually comes from the Book of Mormon. And even more dangerously, it reflects the very mindset of the Pharisees that Jesus was being depicted as arguing against. That the Pharisees thought that the Messiah, the image of God, would be manifest in a Jewish person keeping the law. And so the chosen, uh, that scene specifically, we should be very sensitive toward and recognize the danger of that kind of claim Because it's claiming that wisdom itself, human's ability to follow the law, is the way in which God makes himself visible. And we know that that ultimately just led to legalism. So we see in human history that man, separated from God, could not see him. And they tried to see their creator through idolatry by making an image of him. They tried to see God through wisdom by portraying an image of him. And God again and again said no, because he was the only one who was going to provide an image of himself. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. We see here the statement that concludes centuries of mistakes, centuries of idolatry, centuries from Cain all the way through Aaron, the kings of Israel, the kings of Judah, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all trying to make the invisible God visible. Paul makes it clear here, before the Gospel of John has even historically been written yet, he writes to a group of Christians in Colossae, he says that this Jesus, who is your redemption, who provides the pardon for your sins, he's more than just God's beloved son, he is the image of God. You want to know who God is? Look to Jesus. You want to know what God is like? Jesus is who God is like. You want to have a relationship with God? Turn to Jesus as the image that God provides. 
Our big idea for this morning's sermon is what Paul says exactly in this verse, that God shows himself in Jesus Christ. No other. To try to make God visible in any other way other than Jesus Christ himself is idultery and a sin. God made it clear. God told his people, don't try to make an image of me. I will provide the image of me. And it's going to be better than just a statue that stands still. This is going to be an image of me that walks among you, who has breath, who can eat and sit down at your table, who can stay at your house, who can dwell with you, who can walk with you, and who can talk with you. What other religion's idol can do that other than the image that God provides of Jesus himself? Not just a depiction of me, but the very manifestation of me, God says, that Jesus is. And not only that, John chapter 1, verse 1, says that in the beginning was the logos, the word. That word logos, that word word, was the nickname, was the term that was given by the Jewish people to depict wisdom as the image of God. They would describe it as the Greek word logos. And John made it clear that in the beginning there was logos, but the logos was with God, but more than just that, the logos also was God. Jesus, as the image of God, restores the two mistakes made by idolatry. Because on one hand, he perfectly reveals who God is, but on the other hand, he also reveals the route to God. These books of wisdom, these apocryphal works, they say that wisdom is the way of life. They say that wisdom is the depiction of the life of God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. That's how we must understand who Jesus is. The very depiction of God himself in the means by which we know about God, but even more importantly, the means by which we know God. It can be found in no other than Jesus Christ himself. And that is where our hope is wrapped up into. Because Thomas, after Jesus' resurrection, in order to believe, he had to see Jesus. And Jesus made it very clear to him, you believe because you have seen, but blessed are those who believe and have not seen. That when we talk about what we inherit as sons of the light, as children of promise, we talked a couple weeks ago about how we inherit Christ, how we inherit God himself. Well, part of that inheritance, an element of that, is remembering that someday we are going to see God. We're going to actually see him. That the same Jesus that Thomas saw is the same Jesus that is physically present at the right hand of the Father that Leonard today is seeing. He sees him face to face. And so part of our hope in Jesus Christ is not just eternal life, but experiencing God himself, which is made visible to us in the person of his Son, Jesus Christ. And as we think about the beginning of our message today, where we talked about the Wizard of Oz, that's really a broken allegory because they wanted to see a wizard who was not there. 
They wanted to see a man behind a curtain who was ultimately a fraud and a sham. But we can have hope in the fact that the God-man Jesus Christ is not just a man on, behind the curtain, but that he is the man on the cross and the man who is resurrected at the right hand of the Father that we will see someday. The same eyes that Mary saw, the same smile that the disciples saw, we will see him. And let's end and close by turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. A famous passage, a passage of love, but with a significantly massive verse that we often overlook. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 11. This is Paul writing to the Christians in Corinth. He says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, verse 12, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. We will only know and see and enjoy the presence of God in the person of Jesus and because the person of Jesus. Let's make him the image and object of our worship. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we praise you because you are holy. You are so different from us. We are physical. We are earthly. You are invisible and you are heavenly. But Lord, we also praise you because you took on human flesh in the form of your son Jesus and that by you, by you through your son Jesus, we have access to you. We have access to the Father. And so we praise you for the image that you have provided, a perfect image, a sufficient image, an image not made with hands, not born, not created, but begotten, born of Mary. We praise you for Jesus Christ and giving us this physical representation of you by which we can worship you and know you and restore the relationship that was broken because of our sin. Lord, until your physical son returns, may the spirit of your son dwelling in our hearts proclaim the good news of your son. And may it reflect the attitudes and behavior of your son so that people will know who Jesus is, not just by watching a Christian TV show or a Christian movie, but by watching us as Christians. We make that our prayer. Work through us by the name of your son. And in your Son, Jesus Christ's name we pray, the image of you we pray. Amen. I'm going to send you out with a scripture. Please stand with me. This is Paul closing his first letter to Timothy. He gives this benediction. Paul says, To he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in inapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen nor can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion forever. Amen. And all God's people said, all right, go in peace. Stick around for prayer time. Have a great Sunday.